What beautiful music this morning. Thank you guys for that. I loved it. Praise God. We are, again, beginning our vision series, and so I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Honestly, we'll be kind of hitting uh, some of Acts chapter 1 before we even get to Acts chapter 2, so you're welcome to turn to Acts chapter 1 before we actually get to our passage. But today is going to be a vision sermon. A vision sermon is, uh, it's almost an imagined dream of what could possibly be. The, the way you would desire things to be, the way they would function, what they would accomplish. This is a vision sermon. So it, it will look a little different. But just to kind of get things going, uh, I had a conversation uh, with one of you um, earlier this, or I guess last week, middle of last week, and, and it kind of um, put an image in my head, and it was a funny one. And so I, I, want, I want to show you the image that, that popped into my head. You, you see that uh, there on the screen. That is an old Volkswagen Beetle in uh, the middle of a flower garden, and it's sitting there not doing anything uh, but it's displaying a bunch of flowers in the trunk. Yes, the trunk, because the engine's in the back on a Volkswagen Beetle. They did it backward. Um, but th yeah, th we have this, this Volkswagen Beetle that's been, you know, turned into a flower pot. And, and I wonder, like, as I think about that, what would the designers and creators of this car say if they saw this picture? You know, what, what would they think about it it just it's just sitting there. What would they think about, uh, you know, just that it's, it's displaying these flowers in the trunk? I, I don't know, but like, I, I imagine they would say something like this. That's not what it's supposed to look like. The, the, the paint is all faded. It's got probably, you know, 50 years of sun on it. They might say it's, it's doing something and it's just kind of sitting there and it's supposed to be functioning differently like we created it to have air in the tires the engine to be purring and to be cruising down the open highway and i think they would say it was definitely not created to hold flowers that was not its intended purpose and mission and goal it was supposed to take people from where they are to where they need to be. That's why we created this bug, this Volkswagen bug. I, I don't know for sure, but I, I imagine they'd say something like that. All that work, all that design, all that effort, all that paint, all that material, and it's being used like that. But I, I want to ask you this question as we, we think this morning. How many churches how many gatherings of Christians, is what I mean by the word church, how many gatherings of Christians do you think have become just like that car? They exist, but they do not look like what they were supposed to look like. They are functioning in a sense. They have all sorts of ministries and services and events but they are not functioning the way they were created to. And in it all, they are not doing 
what they were created to do. They are not fulfilling the purpose they were created to do. And I wonder how many churches are content holding flowers rather than taking people from where they are to where they need to be. But I just wonder how many churches are like that and aren't even aware of it. Or maybe they haven't quite become a flower pot yet, but they're, they're somewhere in between. They're not cruising on the open road. They're not taking people where they need to go. Maybe they've just become a show car. Maybe they're just a garage sitter under a, co- a cover. I, I, I wonder these things because I, I think, I mean, like, it's possible they're like that and don't even realize it. Don't even realize how far they have fallen and maybe even how far we have drifted from the ideal, the created, designed, built-in ideal of what it is supposed to be, what it's supposed to look like, what it is supposed to accomplish. Now, let me ask you, if you were to say, okay, well, what is it supposed to look like? What is it, how is it supposed to function? Uh, what's it supposed to do? How would we figure that out? Do, do we just look at the old, broken, misused, run-down version and expect that we'll have a perfect vision of what it's supposed to be like? No, I, I think what we would need to do is turn back the clock, right? We would need to see the car when it was freshly painted. We'd need to, to hear that engine purr as it rolled off that showroom floor. And it would, we'd need to see it doing, fulfilling what it was created to do, to truly appreciate the value and beauty of the car. And I would say the same thing is true for churches. Now, I just want to submit this to you when we say, you know, how, how can we grow? How can we change as a church? How, how can we be better? How can we do better? I would say it is not the best idea to look around at what other churches are doing to gather a big crowd. It's not the best idea to look back in our history books to see the way that we have always done it. And I would even say it's not that we should look back and see how Jeff has led for the past six years. Like that, that's not what we should do. I think we too need to turn back the clock. We need to see the church when it was freshly created, when it still had that new church smell. I don't know. Uh, we, we need to, to, to hear the way the engine purred, the way the tires were inflated, the way it cruised down the highway. We need to see how it used to fulfill its purpose of taking people, human souls, from where they are to where they need to be. And that's exactly what we will be looking at today, mainly in the book of Acts and mainly in Acts chapter 2. But again, we're, we're, we're wanting a, a vision of God's church. So I, I, I'm so hesitant to make today just a bunch of bullet points and sub points. Like I want us to get a picture of God's ideal for the church. When he purchased by the blood of his son, the church, and then he created that church, empowered it by the Holy Spirit, what did it look like when it was new and shiny and fresh? How did it function and what purpose did it accomplish? And so this is what I, what I want us to do. We kind of are going to follow the story because, right, the Gospels and the book of Acts, they are narrative. This is a story. And so I'll, I'll just remind you kind of where we're at in the book of Acts. 
Uh, Acts flows directly from the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in those gospels, we see that God the Son steps out of heaven, out of his, his perfect communion fellowship with God the Father, and he takes on human flesh as the person of Jesus, still fully God while now being also fully man. Then this Jesus lives a perfect life, dies a substitutionary death for those who had sinned. He pays for sin and he rises from the dead victorious. These are, again, all the things that we see happen in the, the, the stories of the, of the Gospels. And Jesus does make a way of salvation, of, of having our sins forgiven, of being given new eternal life, new relationship with God through faith in what he did. Now, 40 days after Jesus' resurrection from the grave, he is going to ascend back to heaven until the proper time when he comes again. Uh, but before Jesus goes, before Jesus ascends back uh, up to the right hand of the Father, he gives his followers, <clears throat> excuse me, he gives his followers their purpose, their mission. He tells them what they are to be about. And so this is, this is what I want us to see before we even get to our passage. We need to know the original mission, the original purpose of the church. And so this is number one, if you're following along in the outline. The mission of the church, that, that the God who created it, the Christ who, who, who paid for it with his blood, that he gives to the church, is that they are to make and train disciples. That is to be their mission, to make disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, and to train up those disciples to obey, observe all that Jesus commanded, including making and training more disciples. But we, we see this command uh, back in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Like this, this again is after the resurrection and just before Jesus ascends. He says, it says there, and Jesus came and said to them, his followers, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So you, you see that there pretty clearly, uh, that they are to go and make disciples. They are to baptize them into the church, this water baptism. And they are to teach them to observe all that Christ commanded. They are to train them up. But then we see this kind of picked up again uh, in, in the book of Acts. This is again right before uh, Jesus ascends, and we'll like, even see that here. Acts 1, so if you have your Bible open to Acts 1, go to verse 8 there, 8 and 9. Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus says to his followers, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, my disciple makers in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And just to show you how important this is, verse 9, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of the, their sight. So here, 
just before Jesus ascends to the Father, he says, yeah, I've already given you this command to, to, to make disciples and train disciples, but you're not going to be doing it alone. I am going to be leaving you, but I'm going to be sending you another helper, right? That's John 14. Well, what is that helper going to do? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. It will be through the power of the Holy Spirit that you make disciples and train disciples to make more disciples. This is the mission. This is the mission given from Jesus before he ascends. And so at the beginning of Acts, this hasn't happened yet. There in verse 9, Jesus ascends, but they haven't yet received this promised Holy Spirit. That happens at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. They are waiting. By the way, we see in uh, verses 14 and 15 that there's about 120 of them. They are gathered uh, in, in this, uh, an upper room, and they are praying together. This is what they're doing. And so uh, Acts chapter 2, we'll look at verse number 1, uh, 1 through 5. Acts 2, 1 through 5, it says this, when the day of Pentecost arrived, that that was a a Jewish festival, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. You have these about 120 followers of Christ all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting in divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5, Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Okay, so just again, we're we're following the story, the, 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 the narrative of what happened here. They had been waiting for this promised Holy Spirit so that they could go fulfill this mission. And then in Acts 2, they're all gathered together and the Holy Spirit does come upon them. And, and he, he, he gives them these, he not only comes upon them, he indwells them. He says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they begin speaking in other tongues, other languages, and, and they're, they're sharing the gospel of Jesus. And, and these people, many are amazed because they are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ from these people in their own language. They're, they're from all these different nations, but they're hearing the gospel in their own language. Now, others mock them and say, oh, they're just drunk. So Peter responds. Again, we're still just following the story. Peter responds in verse 14. Now, I'm not going to read his whole response because it's very long. But yeah, we see it happen there. But Peter, standing with the 11, so he's with the other 11 apostles, lifted up his voice and addressed them. And then Peter goes on to preach a, a, a wonderful, uh, eloquent, and incredibly harsh sermon <laughs> to, to these people. Like, this is... This is the Savior of the world whom you crucified. He was sent by God, but you crucified him. But in that, 
he died for our sins. And so there, here's how the people respond. Acts 2, 37 to 41. Now, when they heard this, when they heard Peter's sermon there, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So basically, be baptized as a symbol of your union with Christ and his sacrifice, and you will receive the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that they had received just earlier that same day. It says, verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom our, who the Lord our God calls to himself. Then uh, down to verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Do you, do you see what just happened here? The, the, the vehicle has just been painted and it has just rolled off the showroom floor. We have the creation of the New Testament, New Covenant Church. What, what makes a New Covenant Church a New Covenant Church is that it has received the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what we saw happen. This is all in one day in chapter two, that the, the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, receive the promised Holy Spirit. They preach the gospel. Peter preaches his sermon and 3,000 more believe and receive this promised Holy Spirit. They receive forgiveness of sins. They are baptized, again, baptized into Christ and into the church. And they receive this indwelling Holy Spirit. I mean, this, this is huge. This is the creation. This is God creating his church that Christ died for. This is him rolling the church off the showroom floor. And so this is when we really should be paying attention. What, what is this new, brand new, fresh church going to do? What's it going to look like? How's it going to, a func to, to function? And what is it going to accomplish? And so we might ask at this point, so do they roll off the showroom floor? go park in the middle of a flower bed and then become a vase, basically, a flower pot? Do, do, do they, in other words, do they say, hey, we got salvation, like, let, let's, let's just go back home, you know, go back to our normal lives, go, go back to our, our, the way things were. I mean, sure, we'll add some, some church, some Bible study, and then, but then we'll go back home and we, we've got our, our ticket, uh, we've got our salvation. I mean, that, that I would equate with being a flower pot, uh, with, with being a car that's treated as a flower pot, to, to just say, I, I, I exist and that's good enough. But this is what we see in the text. I'm just going to go ahead and read it in full, and you can read along with me. This is the very next verse after uh, the 3,000 souls were added, beginning in verse 42. And they, that is, these new, fresh, this new, fresh church, this new group of people, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread 
and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. I just want to say that again. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. That's going to be really important, and having favor with all the people. But here we go. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So, so there, there's a, a lot there. Again, we're, we're looking at this in narrative, so I don't want to like break this down too much. It's just a beautiful picture of what God's newly created church is supposed to look like, how they're supposed to function, and what they are supposed to accomplish. And so, so what are they accomplishing? Well, th- this is number two, if you're following along in your notes. The result of what they look like and how they function is they were fulfilling the Great Commission, right? We, we see that in, in the second half of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Like this is what they're supposed to be accomplishing. They're supposed to be taking people from where they are to where they need to be. From rejectors of God to receivers of God. From, from haters of Christ to lovers of Christ. From, from dead in their sin to alive in Christ. This is what they are doing. They're fulfilling the great commission. They're adding to their number or the Lord is, but through their agency, the Lord has added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And I, by the way, actually see both aspects of the Great Commission here. Because you remember the Great Commission, their mission is to make disciples and to train disciples. But the wording here, the Lord added to their number. The, the idea there is, they didn't just get saved and then they split off and go their own way. No, they're, they're added to the number of the church. They're added to the church community. They're added to uh, the life and function of the church. Why? Because they needed to be trained up. They, they needed to, to be a part of this community uh, to not only be a disciple, but to be trained up as a disciple. They are fulfilling the Great Commission. And so again, we just see this as beautiful. We think of the car, they, they, they get in, they start it up, they drive, and it takes them from where they are to where they need to be. And we see the church doing that, taking people from where they are to where they need to be, forgiven of their sin, right relationship with God, worshipers of God, and even those who continue to spread the gospel. And so I, I would just say to you, like, isn't that the type of fruitfulness and effectiveness we want for our church? To be a church who, who takes the Great Commission seriously, not just in idea, not just theologically, but, but practically and is actually accomplishing it, that is actually making headway. I know this is how I want, want God to use, use my life, and it's certainly how I want God to use this church, this gathering 
of believers to be about something so much bigger than ourselves, to be about God's story, grand story of redemption, about God's glory being worshiped by many people and about eternal souls being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light through this vehicle of the church. So they are accomplishing God's mission day by day, day by day, that their number is growing. They're those who are being saved. And so again, we, we have to say, okay, we, we see that they're the, the shiny new church and they've been given a mission by Jesus Christ, make and train disciples. We see that they're fulfilling that mission. So how are they doing it? Or is there just one or two of them? Like the, the, you know, we think oftentimes when we think about the book of Acts, we just think about the apostles going around and doing ministry. You know, people like Peter and James and John going and, and, and doing ministry. In our day, we would translate that to, well, the pastor does ministry. He, he, he shares the gospel with those who, who come to the church. He, he trains them up. We think about uh, maybe evangelists. They go out into the community and make disciples. Think about missionaries. They leave their present context and go to another context to share the gospel. And, and so they do it. They're, they are how the Great Commission is fill, fulfilled, we often think. But I want to tell you, from what we see here in Acts, when this, when this church rolled off the showroom floor, that was not how it was supposed to be. We do see one little teeny mention of the apostles there, that they're doing signs and wonders. But otherwise, this passage is not about the, the, the apostles. It's not about the select few, not about the especially gifted and charismatic and all these things. What we see here is this. Number three, the method, God's uh, ordained method is they, are, they functioned as a great commission community emphasis on that word community. They did not function as Great Commission individuals, but as a Great Commission community, a whole, a body. I mean, the Bible actually uses that analogy for the church, that we are Christ's body, each member doing its own part, doing its part. The Great Commission, the way God intends it, is to happen as a church functions, as a gathering of Christians, function as a great commission community. Now, I think there are several aspects to a great commission community, and I've still been working on refining this, um, so you have to bear with me. to Say, what, what, is, what is a great commission community, and, and how is it supposed to function? Well, well here, here's what's supposed to happen here, the, the elements that make up a Great Commission community. I don't have these in the PowerPoint or anything. I just wrote them down on my sheet of paper. So the first aspect of a Great Commission community is that they are unified in Christ. That is, they have trusted in Christ and, and unified in Christ, and they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So that's the first thing, like the foundation of what a Great Commission community is. It is a group of people who have trusted in Christ Jesus for their salvation and who have received the empowering Holy Spirit. That's the foundation of a Great Commission community. 
Secondly, a Great Commission community knows and pursues their purpose together, right? Like we need to know our mission. These new believers needed to know their mission, to know what they needed to be about. And thankfully, Jesus had given it to them. He had given them the Great Commission. He had given them that wonderful promise in the book of Acts that they would receive power and they would be his um, witnesses, um, that they would you know, spread this gospel. So a Great Commission community knows and pursues their purpose, which is the Great Commission to make and train disciples. We know and we pursue it together. That's a Great Commission community. Know and pursue their purpose together. Thirdly, a Great Commission community intentionally builds up one another in Christ-likeness. There, there is a refining aspect to a Great Commission community. Um, I, I, I've I don't even know like how the analogy works, but I've heard the analogy of like, if you take just one stone or one diamond or whatever, and you take it in a can and you shake the can around, like it still is just jagged and rough and, and nothing really changes. But if you take a bunch of them and put them in that same can and shake them up, shake them up, shake them up, because of their interaction, because of their friction, they refine and smooth one another. And at the end, you kind of end up with like marble shapes because they have refined one another. And this is what a Great Commission community does. They intentionally build up one another in Christlikeness. And we're going to look at this again in the passage in just a moment. But here's the, the final aspect I want to give you. So they're trusting in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. They know and pursue their purpose together. They intentionally build one another up to look more like Christ. But then this fourth and final one, and I'll show you this in the passage. By their community, by the very act of their lives together, they commend the gospel. By the way they relate to one another, the way they speak to one another, the way they treat one another, the way they fellowship with one another, they authenticate, they validate, they commend the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, a city set upon a hill cannot be hidden. That is what Christian communities are supposed to be. We're supposed to be a city set upon a hill that people look and they see and they see something different. The next thing he says is, you are the light of the world. So a city set upon a hill cannot be hidden. You are the light of the world we are supposed to be like, Christian community is supposed to be like a city that is shining with light for the world to see. And they are to see something very different. And so I want to show you this. By, by the relationship, they commend it. This is, uh, I see this most clearly in, in verse 47. Oh, I've already got it up there. Verse 47. Verse, it says there, they were praising uh, God. But then it says this, they, the group of Christians, were having favor with all the people. They were having favor with all the people. Then you see the result of that, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You, do you see that relationship? So, so by the way, the church community is living their lives in togetherness, in relationship 
empowered by the Holy Spirit, they were having favor with all the people, and the result of that is the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so I'll just point this out, and then I'm going to break it down a little bit more. It was through this Christian community's life together that people saw them, and they said, there's something beautiful about that that I've never seen anywhere else. There is something extraordinary about the way they do life together. There is something you could maybe even say supernatural about how they interact. They have this favor, and that is how the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. It wasn't just seeing an individual Christian who's really good at studying his Bible and praying. They're, they're, They're seeing this group of Christians doing life together And because of that, they were having favor with all the people and they were being saved day by day, adding to their number. Now, I want to clarify who all the people are. So it says they were having favor with all the people. Does that mean that everyone in Jerusalem liked the Christians and liked what they were about? Anyone? Think about the future chapters of the book of Acts. Does everyone in Jerusalem, like them? No. Uh, I kind of wrote down a few things. Um, In chapter 4, you'll start to see believers persecuted uh, for their faith by the the, uh, religious leaders. In chapter 5, some will be arrested for their faith. In chapter 6 and 7, Stephen will become the first martyr, the first person who is killed for following Jesus faithfully. And, and that, that story will continue on uh, throughout the book of Acts, that there are some who will certainly not look upon the church, not upon their message, not upon uh, the, the way they do life with favor. <laughs> they will look very disfavorably. And so we need to recognize that, that I'm not saying that, that this is a popularity contest, that all of a sudden everyone will like us if we start truly living the way Christ would have us following God's vision for the church. But what I am saying is this, that all those who are appointed unto salvation, all those whom the Father will draw to him, those are the ones who will see the church, see our interactions, our our speech, our our, uh, love for one another, our care for one another. We'll look more at that. They will see that and it it will... soften their heart. It will validate the gospel that we are sharing. And they will be added day by day, those who are being saved. This is what's going on here. That's who all the people are, is all those who are going to trust in Christ looked upon them with favor. That is the means, that is the the tool in God's hands by which he was adding to their number was the church community functioning as a Great Commission community, not just individual Christians, not even just individual Christians who are about the Great Commission, but a Great Commission community. It commends the gospel. It validates, it authenticates, because it is utterly different than anything the world has ever seen. You say, well, well what's, what's so different about it? Well, 
you could in a word say they were devoted, and that's kind of how Acts starts it. But look at what they are devoted to. This is just re- reading our passage again. Let's just think through their life, how they functioned as a Great Commission community. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So I'll just pause there for a moment. So they, they, they become Christians, but they're not content where they are at, saying, you know, like, I'm forgiven, I'm still really bad, but I'm forgiven, so it doesn't matter. No, no, they, they wanted to learn, they wanted to grow, they wanted, and so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. By the way, just to help you understand, like, the apostles' teaching, uh, they're dead now, the apostles, uh, but we do now have the apostles that were teaching about Christ, teaching what he had done. Like we have all of that right here in God's word. So they, they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. I love that word. They were devoted to the fellowship. They didn't just get saved and say, okay, now I'm going to go back to my comfortable, safe, uninterrupted home. They were devoted to the fellowship. Fellowship, we'll we'll get into it more in future weeks, but this is an amazing word, fellowship. It means several things, and all of it is is displayed here in this passage. But fellowship means, number one, togetherness. Like that's, you know, we think of that as, as fellowship, but that's the most shallow meaning of the word fellowship, but it's required for fellowship. So you have togetherness, then, then this word fellowship, koinonia in the Greek, means a share in one another's lives. That means when you, when you go up, I go up. When you go down, I go down. Like we are in this together. That's, that's koinonia. They are devoted to the fellowship, to the good of one another, the spiritual good of one another. But there is one last meaning of this word fellowship. And again, we'll see it in these verses. It also means generously caring for one another's needs. Generously caring, like it's it's just another word for donation, like kind of thing, Uh, or or, um, yeah, that's what this word koinonia also means. You can see it in the Bible that, that sometimes it simply means meeting the needs of another person. They were devoted to these things. They were devoted to togetherness. They were devoted to sharing in one another's lives, having a share rather, in one another's lives and to practically, generously, sacrificially meeting one another's needs. And we see that, by the way, in verse 44. You can see it up there on the screen. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they, so togetherness, all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So, so they, 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 they are together. They're devoted to togetherness. They're devoted to, to sh- having a share in one another's lives. They're devoted to meeting one another's needs. I'm going to save uh, the breaking of bread for just a moment because we're going to take communion, and, and so I'm going to talk about it there. But then finally you have there the prayers. They devoted themselves, is that uh, the first verse there, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So, so what I, I kind of see going on here is they care so much uh, about Christ 
and about one another, that they together pray for one another. They, 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 they lift up one another in prayer. They, they, they lift up the cause of Christ together. And these are things that you, by the way, see. The prayers, Acts chapter 4, they, they together pray for boldness, that they would continue sharing the gospel. This is what they're devoted to. They, they, they say, we're, we're a group of people, but, but, and we have a share in one another's lives, and we desperately need God. And so we're going to get together. We're going to pray. We're going to pray for one another. We're going to pray with one another. They're devoted to the prayers. And I just want to read this because I just think it's great. Verse 46, just again reminding us of, of what this fellowship looked like, what this togetherness, what this having a share in each other's lives looked like. And day by day, attending the temple together. So that's like corporate worship, right? That's like the, the, the big gathering. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. That's, that's intimate fellowship. You can't have the whole church here at 3,000 and adding more every day. This is saying like, hey, we have some extra food. You, you want to come over? And like that's, that's taking a share in one another's lives. They're building, intentionally building one another up in Christlikeness as they do kind of normal life together. And that's what's so extraordinary about it is that they're, they're doing normal life in an extraordinary way. And so you have the corporate togetherness, yes, at the temple, but then you have the intimate togetherness where you can get to know one another, get to encourage and exhort one another intimately, breaking bread in their homes. And from that, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. There's this worshipful attitude that's happening among this community, and they're having favor with all the people. From all these things, the outside world is watching. By the way, remember that a lot of these people probably heard Peter's sermon at Pentecost. These people who are being added day by day, they probably heard Peter's sermon at Pentecost. What changed their minds? What, what made them say, okay, I want to turn away from myself. I want to turn away from my sin. I want, I want to, to pick up my cross and follow Jesus. What would make them say that? They saw this community. And through that, they're fulfilling the Great Commission. What, what Peter preached and what I'm sure they were still sharing was affirmed, confirmed, commended through the community, the way they did life together, the way they intentionally did it, by the way, the way they were intentionally living this way where the world could see. And those are, that's a challenging thought. Like, can the world see what we're doing right now? And so I'm, I'm encouraging you guys, and we're going to get to the breaking of bread in just a moment, the communion. I want to encourage you to, to, again, not worry about what other churches are doing to draw a crowd that they can hype up. Not worry about what we've always done. Not worry about what I have led us to do these past six years. Let's get God's vision for the church. 
but let's see the way he shaped it, the way he created it, the way he built it, the way it looked, the way it functioned, and the purpose it fulfilled when it first rolled off that showroom floor. Let's get God's vision for the church, and that is to be a Great Commission community. To have one anotherness, fellowship with one another, that koinonia, having a share in one another's lives. Now, I will turn to the breaking of bread. This may and most likely is talking about the Lord's Supper, communion that Jesus instituted. They, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. It's most likely talking about communion. It could be talking about them eating their meals in their homes, like it does in, in verse 46. I'm not sure, but this is sometimes uh, what the way the Bible talks about the Lord's Supper. And so I wanted to tell you uh, what, what that's about. The, the Lord's Supper, this communion that we take, is supposed to remind us of, of, of several things, but I would say two of the most important things we can remember from this Lord's Supper is our union with Christ because of his broken body and his shed blood. We are unified to his sin-bearing sacrifice. We are unified to his resurrection life because he poured out his life only to take it back up on the third day. We are unified to those things. That by faith, we are unified. And this is a, a picture, a rep representation of our union with Christ. But, but in addition to that, the communion we take together. We don't, we don't just take it alone in our homes. We take it together because it is also supposed to be a reminder of our inseparable union with one another, that we have the very same Savior, that we have received the very same Holy Spirit, that we have the very same mission. We also have the very same struggles and troubles and sins and flaws, but we're in it together. And that's what this communion table reminds us of. And so here in just a moment, Douglas is going to come up, or someone is going to come up, and we're going to have just a time of prayer. And I want to commend to you that you do remember what Christ has done to purchase not only your life, but his bride, his church, with his broken body and his shed blood. But I also want to encourage you to think about the union between you and, and every Christian, but, but especially the Christians in this room, your, your church, your community of believers. And, and I, I would uh, encourage you to ask three questions to, you know, as you're praying. Ask God to reveal to you, these to you. Is there someone in our community, in, in, in our church, a community of believers, that you have wronged and you have not made it right? You've wronged them and you have not made it right. Is there someone who has failed you and you have refused to forgive them as Christ has forgiven you? Someone who's failed you and you refuse to forgive them. And is there anyone you have failed to love and you know about it, you know you should, you failed to love as Christ has loved you? I, I would say, I would encourage you to say, God, is there, have these things happened? Have I failed anyone? Has anyone failed me and I'm not forgiving them? Is there anyone I'm just refusing to love? And, and I would just say, as we partake of this communion, like you can make those things right. 
by God's power, by, by God's Holy Spirit, you can do extraordinary things. You can make right your wrongs. You can forgive those who failed you. You can love those who are not easy to love. And so uh, this is what I'm going to say to you, and, and the Bible gives, us, um, gives me precedent for this. If you are unwilling to make right your wrongs, if you're unwilling to forgive those who have failed you, if you're unwilling to love the unlovely, then I would ask that you abstain from the table. But if you're going to come to to Christ today and say, God, I I see that this is wrong, that this relationship is not the way it should be in my Great Commission community. This relationship is not the way it should be, and I'm going to change it. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to make it right. Give me the strength to make it right. If that's where you're at, then then come freely and take of this table. This is for all believers, but I I would say we we do not make a mockery of this table that displays our union in Christ and with one another by walking in disunity and still partaking. And so I'm going to lead you in a little prayer, and then you'll have some time in your seats to to talk to the Lord as well. Father God, we are so thankful uh, that, like that that old Volkswagen Beetle, um, we, we can see that something's not quite right, that it probably doesn't look the way that it should, that it's probably not functioning the way it should, that it's probably not fulfilling the purpose that it should. And so I thank you that, that we, like that car, we can turn back the clock. We can look at the old picture you've given us, God, of the church, of what it was supposed to look like, how it was supposed to function, and what it was supposed to accomplish. God, this is your vision for the church. Would you help us to cast aside our vision and our desire for what church community is? God, would you help us to take up your vision for it to become our vision and to devote ourselves to it just like these first believers did. They devoted themselves to these things. God, help us. Help us today and help us in the coming weeks as we continue to dig into your word, as we continue to learn how we might grow as this type of community, Lord. And God, our ultimate prayer, our ultimate goal is that as we worship you, as we walk in obedience and faith in you, Lord, that you would help us to do our part in fulfilling this great commission you've given us. Because God, you deserve worship and praise and honor from our neighbors, from family members, from coworkers. God, you deserve praise of the people over there in Poplar Springs neighborhood. You deserve the praise of people that are at the park. You deserve the praise of all these peoples and even to the ends of the earth. God, you deserve it. So Lord, would you help us to be a part of this great commission, our glad mission with you, God, and with one another. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Just take some time, talk with the Lord.